0: Hello, listeners. In this session of Small Talk, we will be conversing with two special guests, Judy Farley and Monique Mello from Boston Children's Hospital's Patient Relation Department. My name is Teresa Shannon, and I am the Nurse Education Coordinator for NINE East,
1: an inpatient medicine unit. Hi, I'm Denise Downey, the Nursing Professional Development Specialist from the Emergency Department at Boston Children's. And next to me is... Hi, I'm Kate
2: Donovan. I'm the Clinical Director of Innovation for the Department of Pediatrics, the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator, and the Simulation Program.
0: All right. Now that our introductions are out of the way, I just want to welcome Monique and Judy. um, And thank you so much for agreeing to join us. We're very excited to hear about your roles in our patient relation department. So to get us started, could each of you take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about yourselves and your journey to where you are right now?
3: Hi, this is Monique and Judy. Thank you for having us. Mm-hmm. So I started my career here at Children's in 1995 on the inpatient psych unit. Probably early 2000s, I sort of came over here to, to the Center for Families before it became the Hale Family Center for Families in the lobby. The Center for Families used to be in this suite where we are right now, actually. And Diane Arnold had also, who's our director, had also been in Beta Five and came over to to Family Ed. I was doing some other roles in the Center for Families, including the Family to Family program. And Kitty Scott at the time was the sort of the lead for patient relations, which looked very different then as it does now. And Kitty retired and Diane and I sort of took over the role. And at first, it was more giving out parking vouchers and listening to some complaints, but um, it's morphed into something much greater over the years.
4: So I'm Judy Farley, and I have
3: always wanted to be a
4: pediatric nurse for as long as I can remember. Like As early as my childhood can bring back a memory, I wanted to be a nurse and a nurse at Boston Children's. And so when I graduated from school, though, in, in 1980, I couldn't begin in pediatrics because you had to have adult experience. So I began my role at Mass General on the neuroscience unit because it was a position available. I, did, I was just going to get my adult experience and move on over to children's where my goals and aspirations were. I fell in love with neuroscience nursing. I had an amazing experience with great leaders, great mentors, just brilliant nurses, and I was very happy there, but I started to get further away from my original goals and aspirations to be a pediatric nurse. So I stepped back and looked at Children's, and they actually had a neuroscience unit, Division 33. So I applied, bringing my clinical experience over to pediatrics and fell in love even further um, and have been here ever since. And I've journeyed through many different roles, from a staff nurse in neuroscience, Division 33, to to level two nurse um, on division 33, and then got hungry again for more experience, um, sat for the boards for um, certification in neuroscience nursing, but wanted more. So chose to go to graduate school, and I picked the University of Pennsylvania because it actually had a great neuroscience pediatrics clinical nurse specialist role. Completed that with, again, great experience. And my intention was not to come back to children's right away, eventually to come back to children's but I thought um, it was a great time to look at the rest of the country. Children's had the best job, so I came back to Children's and have been here ever since in a variety of roles. So clinical neurospecialist, and then moved, had the opportunity to move into the role of director of neuroscience nursing under i mean Sporing's leadership, and that was an, an enormous privilege and probably my favorite job of all because I could be a resource to staff to help change patient care. And that's really what I love to do is support patients in whatever way we can do that. That job allowed me great opportunity. And it grew and grew and grew. And it grew beyond my ability, at least the way I felt, to do it as well as it needed to because it was coupled with a growing family. And so I needed to make a painful but personal decision that it was time to step out of that favorite role when we became um, expecting our third child. So that was in 2001. He was born. His name is Kyle, and he's magnificent. And he just turned 21. But I stayed in very much in, in a variety of different roles. Basically, Eileen asked me to uh, be available to help in any way, be it writing on the magnet team, writing you know policy procedures. She was very supportive of me being able to work from home and manage a growing. Family and caring for elderly parents, which led me up to about 2009 when the DMH mandated that every institution with a locked inpatient psych unit have an identified human rights officer. So Eileen asked me to write the position description, which was very, you know, again, kind of what had been happening. Lots of things came across my desk. And when I wrote that job description, I thought I would love this job. It's everything I love about nursing. Patient advocacy, teaching, support, collegiality, um, and I asked her what her plans were, and she didn't know because it was a new position. So I asked her if I could give it a try. I felt like I had everything it was looking for. I knew all the policies and procedures. I had written most of them over the years. And my role as clinical neurospecialist, I knew how to consult, be a part of a team, but not take over and really be balanced. And she said, "Give it a try." I didn't even really know what it would mean hour-wise, um, so began relationship building on Beta 5 and learned how to participate as a part of the team without being a part of the team and be a support. Really, my role is to inform and educate patients, families, and staff on their human rights. And human rights are different. It's a little bit of a subspecialty of rights on the locked unit because the fundamental right of freedom's been removed. So the Department of Mental... Health has actually identified six fundamental rights that are unique to Bayer 5, and now 5 West over in Waltham. And my role is to make sure that those are really uh, supported and enforced. And the staff that I have the privilege of working with, it's never a concern that they're not supported by them, it's that kids are informed. So I rotate, you know, I round on the unit, I meet with the kids, they all know who I am. Um, I'm a part of many team meetings. Any way that I can help inform families, children, and staff about how they can best be heard. That's actually how I describe it to kids how to help your voice be heard and be understood. It may be that that voice is one of confusion, but it is their voice and needs to be heard and help to support that. So that's my journey at Children's over the years. And actually, my role is also available throughout the house. Teresa and I have worked together on many tough cases on Nine East um, because of our behavioral health population exceeding our capacity. Um, The tough part about that is those rights aren't just recognized outside the locked unit. So kids actually have less opportunities when they're not on their locked unit when they're in need of psychiatric help. Um, And that's a a challenge for all of us, I know, that we're working on remedying.
0: Well, thanks, Judy. Um, I know you referenced about the work you've done with us on 9East, and it's been immensely helpful. And one of the things I think our staff learned was when we thought about patient relations, I know when we have a difficult family, the course of action we usually ask is that, you know, you involve the charge nurse, and then if uh, that can't resolve the issue, we'll go up to the clinical coordinators or nurse managers. Um, And then the next thing is to hand a patient relations phone number and say, here you go. These people will help you. So we look at it that way is you know, you're advocating for the families and kind of helping us in that, you know, when we get into a situation with uh, upset parents, helping to navigate that. And I know there's a lot more, the services that patient relation um, departments provide. But before we get into that, I have to say one thing that you said, Judy, at one of our staff meetings that really resonated with our staff, we had a particularly uh, challenging case um, with the patient as well as the family. And I think our staff was feeling pretty helpless because we're used to like the patient rights and they have the right to refuse, you know, certain cares if they don't want it. And one thing you said was safety trumps rights. And that really, I think, helped our staff um, immensely feel better about the the care that they were providing and kind of empowering them um, to look at a little differently how we're caring for our behavioral health patients um, and other families as well, um, since we're kind of in a culture where at times we can experience people getting upset.
1: Judy, I had a question for you. You were mentioning how you transitioned into the role of the human rights officer Was there any additional training or anything that you had to do that was specific to learning how to be a human rights officer?
4: That's a great question, Denise. Yes, thank you. The Department of Mental Health actually has an annual training for the role of the human rights officer because any institution that has a locked unit has an HRO. So that is held in a variety of places throughout the state to try to do all of the, you know, catch everyone who's available. And that's a mandatory education that uh, is about four to six hours. And actually, I invited Monique to join me in that a a few years ago because she covers when I'm not here. And there are unique languages that you need to learn um, to be able to hold to a right. At times, it means limiting some practice for and using the right language helps people understand. Like earlier today, we needed to meet with the family to inform them that they weren't going to be able to visit their child because their visit is causing him to be so dysregulated that he's unsafe. And he's unsafe. They're unsafe. Staff is unsafe. And staff have managed it with exquisite expertise. But it's just the success isn't there yet. And, you know, after much discussion and much dialogue this morning, it became a decision for at least a reset for a few days, still visiting via Zoom. But looking at that on Vader 5, visitation is a, is a right, and it's actually a right that a child can deny as well. They can say, I don't want to see my parent, but we can say your visitation can't happen right now because of safety issues. So that's a, uh, almost a liberty that allows some more control to that environment of care because it's a milieu. You don't have that ease, on, although you certainly can still do that, on non-locked units. So, that comes from the training is using that language very carefully and making sure that it stays balanced. And actually just reminded me to um, Denise with that, that the decision to place the human rights officer role within patient relations was not um, lighthearted. It was where does this role best fit in the institution? Because it really needs to be unbiased. It needs to sit in a department that has its support, um, but also can't be seen as a bias, like couldn't be an administration or, I mean, other institutions do that because they don't have the depth and staffing, but we do. So the decision was to place the role in this department. And I was so appreciative to be able to build relationships with Monique and Diane and other colleagues who have passed through the years um, and have moved on to other roles. But each one of us have been a great complement to one another. And it's nice to be able to say to families, you know, I'm not a part of the Bader staff. I work out of the Department of Patient Relations. And then they hear that as, oh, you don't have a special alliance to this staff who's telling me something I don't like. So it's actually a a great support to families and staff and kids to think that I'm not a part of that team, even though obviously we're all part of the same team.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow, that's great. Thank you. Monique, can you tell us a little bit about your role and how you complement Judy in the work that needs to be done? So patient relations, I sort of alluded to this at the beginning, but we first
3: started, if there was a call, so I'll just use Teresa as an example. If I would have called Teresa 20 years ago, and she saw my name on the caller ID, chances are her reaction would be, what did I do now? Or why are you calling me? Versus now where we've really cultivated strong ties and relationships with virtually everybody throughout the hospital that, so we're a support to families, but we're a a support to staff to the focus is, is improving the experience for everybody who's involved with taking care of a child or a patient. So we're here as a sounding board. So if you have a particularly difficult family and you're struggling with how to problem solved with with even just basic communication with them, you know, you can give us a call and we can work through that with you. If you have a frequent flyer, for example, a family that comes in frequently and you're anticipating things to sort of escalate quickly from a difficult interaction perspective, you can reach out to us and we can help you work through that and come up with some, you know, sort of keep things at bay before they blow up. We are supports to If there's a a family where it's really difficult, even in clinic, there's been times where we're introduced to the family and and we'll actually sit in on a clinic visit with families just so that we can introduce ourselves. And if they have concerns after, then we can give them some time to vent or to share any complaints or concerns. But I think that's the one plus that we do have is the luxury of time. So either, either in a really busy clinic or on an inpatient unit, if a family is having difficulties, the team, whether it be the nurse or the charge nurse or the, the physicians or anybody who's involved with caring for that child, they don't have the time to give them. Their times we're on the phone or in a meeting with families for, for hours at a time legitimately. I think, you know, last week, all told, I spent three and a half hours with one family, not all at once, but, you know, over a two-day period. And we, we have that Ability to, to hopefully put the fire tamp it down a little bit, right, so that it doesn't become bigger than it needs to. Where I think Judy and I work really well together, and there's there's right now we have a really strong team. We have five of us total now. Where Judy and I work really well is I do have a background in psych. I have years of experience up on Beta Five, and that's sort of where my love is is in child psych. And much like Judy, I didn't even know child psych units. Is, is, even existed. And my first job was at Westwood Lodge and then I came over here to Children's back in 1995, but here we are today and still here. It really is that's where my heart is is with those kids and those families. So I think having a true interest, true passion um, not only for that particular unit but also for the, the rights of those families in that patient really and I think that's what's really helpful for the two of us where we can sort of cover for each other we can punt for each other and honestly in this role, patient relations having a psych background it's, it's almost necessary because of the just how challenging some of the situations are.
0: I can definitely see we're having the psych background and understanding having a good grasp of therapeutic communication has to be key with navigating a lot of the things you both uh, encounter in your daily work
3: yeah and the in and nursing skills too as far as critical thinking and problem solving and really peering down what the issue is making a plan on how we're going to address it and and then the follow-up but listening is probably the number one um, greatest tool in this role. Um, I'm a talker as well and I interrupt all the time, but this job has really helped me to sort of settle down and really pay attention uh, to what families are saying because what may be portrayed as a really difficult family is really a family that's stressed, a family that's scared, a family that you may not know what's going on in the background, whether it be financial difficulties or you know their own illnesses, whether it be physical or mental, or maybe they've lost a child with the same condition And there are those families, they're just not happy. And you need to be able to sit with that and not personalize it. You know, we can only do our best to try to, to resolve things or to come to some sort of resolution or compromise, but we're not always going to be successful. But the best we can do is listen and acknowledge.
1: And I have to say, just in tapping from my experience in the emergency department, we know that our landscape is changing. The emergency department is very different now compared to how it was years ago. We're seeing a very large population of behavioral health patients that are coming in and they're staying with us. They're, you know, boarding for quite some time, which brings some challenges to us. So in the setting of high census, in the setting of long wait times, Our waiting room is overcrowded. We realize that we're calling you folks often to help intervene. How has the recent changes affected you in your role?
4: So my role uh, or the regulations are for the locked inpatient unit. Well, Now with WALPAM, um, which is is a change because it's an additional 12 beds starting in October, has expanded greatly just uh, across those two units, but also in regards to the emergency room because patients are there under psychiatric management, although they have yet to be admitted, right? So this is one of those gray, it's actually not gray, but tough spots for families and staff where a child is unsafe or maybe, maybe questionably safe enough to leave. Families have questions about their rights and I'm called to come down and meet with them. Do I have the right to take my child? I don't agree with staying here waiting for a bed and helping them understand really the truth of their rights, which can be limited once their child is deemed to be so unsafe in terms of leaving. So encouraging them to, well, informing them with the truth and the facts, but also encouraging them to continue to work with their clinical team, that their interest and their best focus is always in the care of their child. And so leaving the emergency room is not necessarily in their best interest, let alone attempting to leave and then having some boundaries placed or limitations to their visiting. So I find those calls are helpful to de-escalate a family and help them then weave into work with the team throughout the course of their stay. The difficulty for me is I wish that I could be more proactive in that because I think if I could round and actually say hello and how are you rather than them reach to the point of needing to speak with me, I could actually prevent some crises from evolving. I say that not just from my experience in the emergency room, but I, that's how I operate on Vader 5 and 5 West. I meet with every kid. I know them. I know their families. And you know the issues of complaints and uh, concerns are limited because of that, because information is power, and we're all so busy. And my information can be very specialized, right? It's a very specific, targeted information to help a family. Um, so I've been working together with our boss John Whiting and um, about expanding that resource, because that has been a huge change, and I think proactive opportunities would be much more supportive to families than reactive. And, as we know, most of the families that, work, that we work with, when they're informed and understand how to care for their kids, they welcome it, they don't argue it, They, you know, people are here. Not to fight with us, we get the you know the tips of those icebergs. But most families really appreciate understanding things, and I think knowing what a commitment is and what signing a three-day and what is a what is a forest admission versus you know a, in terms of a section, parents don't have that language, and I can offer that information to them, and it would be helpful to be able to do that again. In that unbiased, I'm coming from patient relations. I'm not part of the clinical team. Helps. It also gives me a little liberty to say to, a, a you know, the other day a father said, I'm just going to take her out of here. And I could say, that's not a good idea. You know, instead of if I were taking care of that child as a nurse, it would be harder for me to set that firm limit. And he, and I said, that won't help anybody. Why would you want to do that? And then we sat and talked for over an hour to help him understand what was happening. And once he did, he still was furious and upset and sad, but he stayed on point to help his kid. so. That's been the biggest challenge and change in the 10 years that I've been in this role. that it's no longer localized to just the locked in patient unit. And it never really was, but those concepts were few and far between. And now they're, they're more than I can reach. And, and I would like to do more than I can. And we're working on that. So that's a big
3: change. I can say from the uptick in the, in the behavioral health patients, I would say came with the wave of COVID. So I almost feel like there was patient relations pre-COVID and now. What I noticed, obviously, and we all feel it is that uptick, and it's heartbreaking for me, too, as I said, what my passion is to see the uptick in, in behavioral health patients and not having the resources to meet everybody's needs. But I will say from a patient relations perspective, the uptick in angry parents is just that high, if not higher. I feel like with COVID came sort of this... I don't know if it came from, and, and I don't mean this to be sarcastic, but there probably is a little sarcasm, but in COVID, a lot of us were doing a lot of online shopping. So it was instant gratification. And I almost feel like that same sort of expectation is there here, that if they they want families want an answer, they want it now. There's a lack of filter. People are much more aggressive verbally, not only to me, but I hear it more from, or we hear it more from, from staff just how aggressive families can be. And I'm not not saying all families, obviously, but the families that are upset are more upset than they've ever been. I've had very seasoned clinicians come in here, I'm pointing to a chair. If you remember Charlie Brown, they used to have five cents like psychiatrists, five cents, I said that I was gonna put that over my door, but we've had very seasoned clinicians come in in a puddle of tears because they just are just, I can't, you know, word for word. I just can't do this anymore. So that's where we can be supportive. I know there's an office of clinician support, but also an ombudsman now, but we still get a, a fair amount of because we've built those relationships where clinicians will come and speak to us about that. I do a, um, an in service, or basically it's called managing difficult interactions. And I've done it in the ambulatory programs, the ED out in Westwood for the financial group, because you can imagine how upset families are when it comes to the bills that they receive. So it's just a, an overview of patient relations but just some helpful tips and some strategies that folks can implement if they're dealt with or facing a really difficult interaction. I used to do it maybe four times a year and I would say once we started to come out on the other side of covid I was doing it up to three times a week. Mm-hmm. Like I had requests. Like multi, I had to turn turn down the request because we've got so many. So I would, I would say that COVID has brought that. And I would I'll also say that in regards to the, to the emergency room, we do get called down and happy to support your team. And it's just, that's the one thing I love about this job is the relationships that we've cultivated. Our complaints range from anything from my daughter was on the kidney transplant list for two years, and she get kicked off because of a clerical error. And now, what do I do? To I'm calling my child receives I it receives IVIG in Waltham, and I'm expecting a big clinical concern, but it's about the chicken nuggets being cold, or they didn't serve chicken nuggets, and that's their complaint. I start my day off with a with a to do list, and it, it nothing goes as planned.
4: I like in the patient relations office to be an emergency room through the phone. The phone is ringing, much like that door swings open, Denise, down in the ED, except you never, and you never know what's going to be on the other side. It could be, you know, a minor injury or it could be a code. You know, we have liberties, obviously, of a code that's different, but it is that can escalate that fast. So, And if the volume is very high, the phones are are ringing in each, each call, it's that person on the other end needs to hear our voice as if they are the only person in the world. So I do feel like patient relations is like an emergency room, only using the phone. I love my job. I love what I do. And it's because of being able to help the families that do come here for our help, wherever they're coming from and whatever their needs are. I've had a day that I I didn't have lunch yet, not that I care about that, but it happens every now and then. I did manage to get to the bathroom, um, and I kept up a little bit on my hydration. But I, it was a great day because every single place I went, I could help. And even if it wasn't the right outcome, people felt hurt or they felt that things were being considered and responded to. And a day like today, I'll run through here And my great joy comes in connecting with Monique and just saying, you know, how are you? Are you doing okay? Because we are great colleagues, but it's also with, I know her brilliance. If I needed an answer for something quickly, she's got it. And if she doesn't know it, she knows how to get it or where it is. And that gives me such great job satisfaction as well. When you love what you do and the people who you work with, it just doesn't get any better than that even though we are dealing in a crisis beyond words. I I feel like healthcare right now is analogous to like a war. Every case in every situation we haven't seen before, but we're working really hard with the expertise we have and with each other because we can't do it alone. You know, this is an incredible department with brilliant resources. And Monique really minimized that she and Diane built this program. I remember when I was in roles prior to this, patient relations was the answer. The person who answered the phone, they did you know, a wonderful job, but they just facilitated and then redirected the complaint or call to the managers. They didn't participate in the problem resolution. And now there are different mandates to it, DPH mandates, how to manage grievances and complaints with each of these calls. Many of them require a follow-up letter to the family with resolution and the details of those resolution. Everything is documented that comes through this, this office in a separate documentation framework so that we have tracking and watch for, you know any kind of patterns or concerns. That's what DMH looks for when they come here. Show me how you fix this. Show me where the complaint was. I need to follow the resolution. So the work is huge. It's broad and it's deep. Um, And I'm always in awe of my colleagues because they make it look easy because they are such great stars. So those are great parts of our day, no matter how hard it is. It's like we don't let each other go at the end of the day unless you're okay. Mm -hmm. And we also tell each other when we need time off or that, you know, this isn't you're not looking great today? Why? What's going on? We can just interpret that. And you know, the three of you know, working in your career, that's a rarity when a, a co worker says you need time off because it means they're going to have to do more. Because if you're not here, they have to do it. Um, but it's genuine and unconditional, and that's also so rewarding.
2: I love you guys. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Man, we also have a really wicked sense of humor that allows for sanity check something if these walls could talk we actually call it the vault when you yeah. come in it's like the vault the vault is closed you can't share the vault yeah. is open we can share but mm. which is great
2: there's so many things that you touched on I mean I, I can I definitely was the one when I saw patient relations come up on the phone I was 100% that person like oh my god what did I do for sure I think what comes up over and over again is that you don't just hear the patient's concerns the family's concerns the the provider's concerns you listen and you take the time to listen and i think that is huge for the hospital overall you made a comment, Monique, about families shopping online. Do you think consumerism has changed the direction of patient relations a bit? Where people, they're looking at for the patient experience a little bit more than the clinicians at this point? Is that something you're seeing?
3: I think it's more, I, and I wouldn't say that this is everybody, but sort of that request from most concierge medicine. Sort mm-hmm. of, they, you know, wanting one, this is a teaching hospital. And I think that concept is really difficult for a lot of families. So if you make an appointment with Dr. Jones, you expect to see Dr. Jones and Mm -hmm. Dr. Jones, when you call the office, you're only going to speak to Dr. Jones. And as you know, that's not anywhere near what, this is all about. So having sort of that one person where they're always having direct access to, I think that that's a really harsh reality for a lot of families that, you know, they made an appointment with Dr. Jones, but they might see the nurse practitioner, they might see the fellow, they may see a resident first and, and not understanding the the teaching hospital model can create a lot of anxiety for families. But I think the unique role that we have here is, and I use this, this sort of phrasing a lot, your complaint to me because of the cost of because you're in a shared room and here's your poor eight-year-old trying to do a bowel clean out and has to walk past his roommate and his family to get to where he needs to like that's horrendous so the goal is for every patient to have a single room for so many different reasons. It's needed. And we're we're almost there. But but I get to bring that unique perspective, or we get to bring that unique perspective of yes, I'm a nurse, but I'm a parent first and I and I'm also a consumer. So yeah, I d- and I don't get a discount. I always wish that somebody could just sit in here for a day just to see what it's like. I remember somebody saying to me not too long ago, I'd say over the past few years, it was I'd like to do your job. It seems really neat. And I'm like, oh, I really call it neat, but the whole anonymity behind a keyboard is mm. amazing. The things that people will write to providers. It's to any other human being, really. It, it's really shocking to me. And it, the filter isn't just verbal, but also, as I said, the keyboard. So that's really new too, I would say. But Dr. Google is also another that they bring up their own expertise that they, when they were doom scrolling in the middle of the night, and this is what they came up with. But And again, we only get like a snippet of what the amazing things we do at children's. It's a very small percentage. And so it doesn't really reflect all the good that happens at children's. We just are in that unique position of seeing sort of the the other side of the mirror. That was a really big transition for me because as a nurse, it's always about making things better, making sure everybody's happy, making sure that all your loose ends are tied up in this role Because we are riding the middle rail, we're here to support the team just as much as the family. And sometimes not everybody's going to be happy. Not everybody is going to feel like there's been a resolution. And it took me some time to be able to sit with that. But I've gotten used to it. It doesn't make you cold. It doesn't make me sort of aloof to what the stressors are. It's just that I I know our limits and what we can and can't do and what we're able to do. But what I can say confidently is we do our best to make things better for, for everybody. So when a family calls and asks for a patient advocate, we're very clear in stating advocacy is part of our role. And people ask, what what does that mean? I'm here to listen to you, but it's really important for me to get the big picture. So, of course, I'm going to take your perspective, your feelings, your side of things. But I feel like a situation is almost like a Rubik's Cube there's more than one side to a story and it's really important for me to get the big picture. And vice versa, when I reach out to a, to a provider to share some pretty tough feedback, it's always framed as, please know that the information in this email is the parent's perspective. So I'm not joining either side, I'm really playing a neutral role just so that I can d- data collect and come up with a plan on how to make things better for both sides.
2: That's a skill that's so useful across the line. I have been fortunate enough to adopt that kind of mentality saying, "Well, this is a lens from this person or it's not my story to tell or whatever way you do that. Curious about where Crico fits in with this. I had a friend who worked for Crico and made a comment that every concern, however you want to term it, it was something that went through Crico. Is this true?
3: So Crico is our insurance company. It's the hospital's insurance company. And I'm not an expert on this. If there's any concern that there's going to be a claim filed, there's a notice of potential claim. Crico is notified. So if there's any medical error or if there was any patient harm, if there was a potential for patient harm, even if it's been determined that there was no harm caused, but the parents are saying, I'm going to escalate this. We'll always let PPSQ knows that they can file what's called that notice of potential claim. If that happens, they'll reach back out to whoever had the case. That's the other piece of this. It's not like, oh, it's the emergency room, Judy. That's your department. You need yeah. to pick up the call. It's whoever is picking up the phone gets the case. Um, so it's not like if this complaint came to 9East to that I'm going to say, oh, it's Diane. Diane covers 9East. I don't have anything to do with it. Any one of us could have had that case. So we'll, we've been contacted so that we can give more information or if we've heard from the families again provide that update
2: a lot of cogs moving to get to a solution
3: yeah interesting i mean what's nice is it's always best to to manage and address a complaint at the point of service but we know that that's despite our best efforts that's not always going to happen and having that neutral person come in somebody who's not part of the clinical team be that person, even though people will say, well, you know, you're just covering for everybody. No, that's not what we're doing. We're here because we need, you you need some help. You're not getting the answers you need. And we want to be able to support you through this. And having been at Children's for a really long time, we can do a lot of education as far as navigating, you know, the children's system, just doing teaching education on what to expect. You know, one example I, I use in my talks is we get that call where a parent says oh my god my kid's been here for three weeks and you haven't done anything for him so as they're talking i can pull up power chart and read okay so i see that xyz imaging has been done you know serial labs are being done scopes are being done these are So it's not that they're not doing anything, it just must be really frustrating that they don't have a definitive diagnosis. And that's what's frustrating for families, they don't have the answers that they thought they were going to get. And so we're able to listen to how stressful that is. And sometimes it's no longer a problem after they have that chance to vent. And then that becomes just sort of an FYI for situational awareness, this family came down, this is what they stated. But a lot of times it's, I liken it to shaking out a picnic blanket, right? There's so many people involved. There's so many opinions being tossed, changes in the clinical teams every week and sort of reinventing the wheel for some of these families that we have the ability to cast a wide net. So after speaking with a family, I can go through the record. I can identify the key players, send out an email and say, look, this is their experience. I'm not judging you. I'm not saying you did this and you didn't do that. It's This is what it feels like for this family and we can do better. So a lot of times that type of a situation would call for a a meeting without the parents to ensure everybody's on the same page and then inviting the parents in so that we can hear them out. And a lot of times it's communication. They need that one person, that one consistent person to be their point of contact to help with all of this information, because it's information overload for, for families. And some people like to be part of rounds. Some parents don't want to be part of rounds, but they they need that one person to be their point of contact or a standing meeting once a week, not even a meeting, but a phone call. You're going to get a phone call at three o'clock on Thursday, every day, despite There may be no changes, but that's when you're going to expect your call. So make sure you're prepared with all of your questions. We get involved in in really difficult family dynamic situations where a lot of people will say well that's the social work that should be doing that social worker should be doing this well no the social worker needs to maintain that therapeutic alliance with the family and if it's a you know a family where the parents aren't together and they're not able to be in the same room together which happens more than you know i'm sure you guys have all had your experience with that it's having that somebody representing the hospital just saying that this has become disruptive to your child's care We want to make sure that you're able to make your own decisions, but if you're not able to come up with a visiting plan that's going to be fair and equitable to both of you, if you know that you can't get along when you're in the same room and you can't come up with a visiting plan, I'm going to make that plan for you and I don't want to have to do that. We want to give you that power to be able to do that, but if not, we can't have this interrupting the care your child's receiving and people need to feel safe when they're here. We also are tapped for, they used to be called contracts, but they're now called behavioral expectations documents. So if we have families that are particularly challenging, whether it be non compliant with clinical recommendations, refusing vital signs, not letting staff into the room to assess a patient, if they're extremely belligerent to staff they'll try to again address it at the point of service, but if not, they'll reach out to us and we develop a behavioral expectations document that's now been formatted. We worked really closely with legal and it actually gets scanned into the medical record. So it's everybody has access to it. It comes up as a contingency, almost like a behavioral patient, if you're looking in the record. So if there's kids that have a, like a behavior plan, with BRT, for example, if that's put in there, it's found in the same spot. We write those up. We're the ones that are presenting it to families. We always have the support of our incredible legal team. We, we have such a great relationship with them and really feel supported because sometimes it's... You know, again, being in the position where you're dealing with parents who are very upset by the time they get to us can, you know, it's one thing if you're sick, but when your child's sick, it's a whole different kind of angry.
4: And I I just want to emphasize too, the the methods of those concerns or complaints coming are not just the phone, not just the team. Parents go to Center for Families often to the desk and ask that patient relations are called. Um, we actually will go down there and meet with them in that area for safety as well as comfort. And any letter that comes into the institution with a complaint or a concern is funneled to here for a response, which can begin a lot of detective work to find out what the concerns, you know, it's a letter written by usually by the family. And then what does this mean? And figure out how to best respond.
2: Where does social media fit in that? If there's some negative things on Facebook or Instagram, is that something that you guys explore as well?
3: So yes, if they're posting negative things on our on our social media platforms, social media will then let us know. And if it's a true clinical care concern, we'll reach out to the family. We'll, and sometimes that even takes some detective work because we have to figure out who, I don't know, Miss Kitty 99 is. So there's that, but a lot of times people will post on their either their own social media platforms and we don't have any control over that and it's, and it's freedom of information the, in expression. But the other piece is, is if people are posting pictures of staff or they're posting pictures of other families, that becomes an issue and limits are set on that. I'll use an example of a family up in the ICU a few years ago, wasn't on social media, it was through health rage which is it's like Yelp. But, but for the medical world, where the child was still inpatient on the ICU, but the mother, and anytime you asked her if she had questions or concerns, it was no, but she was throwing all of her providers under the bus, writing really negative comments in health grades. And I don't know how they're notified, how providers are notified, but it just put them in such a horrible position because it was clear the mother didn't trust them, but instead of going to them to try to work things out, she was going to this health grade. So I did speak with mom and I said, so is Healthway, going to help you solve your problem. I get that if you're expressing yourself, but it sounds like you have some real concerns. Why don't we look at your concerns and dress them to make them better instead of putting this in an area where it's not going to help you, it's not going to help your child. And it's making the providers taking care of your child feel horrible need to make sure that that there's trust. And right now I think it sounds like you don't trust your team. So we need to make that better. And then it's a slippery slope, right? So if there is a really negative, or if there's somebody that's a sort of a serial poster, so do you take it down, or do you just let it sort of because then it gets buried in all the other comments and let it go? But because then if you take it out or you block them, it can it can exacerbate them and make it even worse. So it's really again we work very closely with our our social media team, but also with legal. Again, we're we're all about protecting too. We want to support staff and. It's not good. I mean, we've all, I've been, I've been reported. I don't know if I've been, I was called out on social media a couple of times, but I've been reported to the board of registration of nursing by somebody i have never met before and they actually had to open a case and that doesn't feel good. And sometimes there are those times where we have to dismiss patients Mm -hmm. and um, that's a really difficult position for providers to be in. And then that's where we are. We're here also to help support them. There's a whole process. It's a very detailed process, but it's not something that you would ever have to do alone. And we would be there to, to support you every step of the way.
4: And those numbers have increased tremendously over the years. You know, it used to be one once in a blue moon that you would, you would trespass a family. And now I would say it probably happens a few times. Well, I want to say a month, but maybe at least once a month.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is either no trespass, or you know, you need to go somewhere else. Just, just this isn't not is it working anymore. We have to make sure we're not, you know, we would never be accused of abandoning a patient. That there's always options out there in the community, and even that is a really supportive. As tough of a message it is to deliver, it's still really a supportive process because we're identifying providers that that are willing to accept them. We help facilitate transfer of medical records the providers remain available to speak with the team, not with the family, but with the the new teams that are identified so that the focus remains on the care of the patient. Mm -hmm. Do you have
0: any tips for our staff that are dealing with dissatisfied or angry families? I know we have some of our staff end up in tears and, or they'll come in and say, I feel like I didn't have the right words. I didn't use the right words. Um, Any tips for helping clinicians dealing with these situations?
3: So part of the talk that I do, it was better before COVID because when we met together, we could actually do role playing. So it's, and I get to play the part of the disgruntled parent, which was always a lot of fun, but it's, it's practice, right? So how do you react to, a, to an aggressive person or somebody that really gets you upset outside of the hospital? is a lot different than how you would react to somebody who's in your face and and insulting you, right? Because we're in a culture of the customer's always right. But no one should be subjected to disrespectful behavior. So depending on the situation, I think it's, you know, it's all about nonverbal communication. You, You can just read somebody and see if they're upset. I think that nipping in the bud sooner versus it becoming a raging inferno. And so I would not, I would have a very low threshold for somebody calling me names or somebody that isn't focused on the care of their child, but is really focused on telling you how bad you are at your job. Always enlisted the support of another, of a colleague or your charge nurse. And I'm thinking from a, from a nursing perspective. And we're always here, here meaning as a, as a sounding board, You know what could you have done? How could you have done this better? Or is it was it just unavoidable and they were just going to unload on you? I think identifying that a parent is upset by saying just that it's really it's obvious you're really upset right now. So I'll use a scenario of you're walking into a room and it's time for the child's medication and a parent comes in and blocks you and. know i want to talk about last night and i didn't like that the nurse came in and made a lot of noise and turned on the lights and you don't care about my kid and he's trying to rest i you know what i hear that you're upset right now i really need to get his meds and then i'm happy to speak with you and if it continues then you can step out i'm going to be right back step Mm -hmm. out of the room unless the help of a colleague or the charge nurse who can then intercept be that person to talk to, to the dad, while you, as the nurse, does what you need to do by, you know, changing bags, giving meds, that type of thing, so that you can tend to that child. If at that point, it's still not helpful, patient relations is a really appropriate next step.
4: And I I would just add to that, that it's helpful to stay focused on that child and that family. You know, sometimes we're so outstretched that, and we want the family to understand why we haven't been able to be there because you're taken care of or you were in a code. And that child and that family, quite frankly, are not interested in why you're not there. They want, are interested in why you, what they need. So addressing the need and not feeling you have to excuse yourself because you were attending to somebody else whose needs were greater, but just staying focused on that patient, their needs, Knowing what they may need to hear at that moment, including maybe nothing right like then, like Monique said, to disengage. But I know I see that a lot, or I hear that a lot from families. And be like, I hadn't seen a nurse in this much time, and then the first thing they told me was all the other things they were doing, and of course they were, and they were probably completely out straight with acuity or managing another very difficult situation. But that family doesn't need to hear that; it only ignites them further, and they don't feel heard. So. I think proactively bring in your resources and also it's okay to be just not have to make an excuse because those excuses are real and they're real to you um, usually doesn't help. And it's just you know our compassionate side to always make things better. We sometimes take fault, and there isn't fault sometimes when you can't be so immediate. It's just a reality. It goes back to that consumerism, Kate, that you mentioned earlier. It's like how fast you know people are expecting. I think that is part of our world today, the instant instant, but then some of it's in reality of how scared people are too, about what their kid needs and assuring them you're here for them. It's okay. I'm sorry. I wasn't right away, but I'm here right now. What can I do for you? Rather than I was busy with another kid and needed me much, you know, that's because we want to justify and make it better. And that might sometimes be going fuel on a fire.
0: That's excellent advice. Cause I think as nurses I and mean, clinicians, not just our nursing colleagues, but you are Apologizing a lot for mm-hmm. things that are really out of your control, and it's probably more important just to validate.
4: I apologize for your experience. Yes, you know, your it's it is how you're experiencing it. So sorry for that experience. So, not to dismiss it, but keeping it in perspective,
3: right? I mean, we've had, I've had calls where, for instance, I'll pick up the phone, you're the 15th person I talked to, mm-hmm. you know, what are you going to do for me? And I need it. Well, okay, so. I know, I'm so sorry that I'm the 15th person you talked to, but this is our first conversation and I really wanna help you. Well, nobody else could. So why are you gonna, what are you gonna do differently? Let's start, my name's Monique, and I have your name? Let's start fresh. And even just with that sort of acknowledging, I things they're really frustrated, apologizing for their experience and letting them know that you're really interested in helping them. That's just, you know, one example. There are so, I mean, we could talk, this this could go on for days for mm-hmm. our examples, as far as you know, the types of interactions and what's helpful, but it's, it's almost like yoga. It's a practice. Mm-hmm. And it's because we're saying these particular phrases and we're able to pull them out of the hat. We have two fairly new team members who both of them have said at different times is, I'm learning most just by listening to what you're saying to families. And again, they're not canned responses. They're sincere, but they work. And it's they're successful in sort of either calming a person down, letting them know that you hear them, letting them know that they're not going to fall through the cracks. We practice a lot of closed-loop communication. Oh, I'm sorry you couldn't get through to GI. Let me call. I'll make sure someone calls you back. So instead of that, I would say you know what, I'm really sorry you've tried for three days to get through It's really important information for us because if it's happening to you, it might be happening to other families. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna reach out to the appropriate people. I'm gonna let them know, I'm gonna have them call you, but I'm also gonna have them call me or let me know that they've connected with you so that I know your needs are met instead of saying, I'll pass it on. Like something as simple as that can can just bring a family from a 10 to a two. Mm -hmm and we use it every day. That's the type of quick, like today was one of those days. Some days it doesn't look like we're busy because I had four cases, but they were four cases that were two hours apiece and had been ongoing. But today was one of those days where I felt like I was putting little fires everywhere out. And some of the questions that you had asked prior to, to the podcast was what excites me about this job? It's never the same day twice. I don't do well personally with mundane. I, I'm either, at a 60 to 100 or I'm asleep. And (laughs) and I I like that. I like the pace of this job. But I also like to help. I'm a people person. I'm a very social person. And I like the interactions with people. Again, I feel like a broken record, but I really value the relationships that we've created in this role. And we have really changed the base of patient relations from somebody that people (laughs) like people like, oh, they would like run in the opposite direction, and now it's oh my gosh, you know I'm so glad you're here. Thank God it's you who picked up the phone. You know those types of responses from families. I mean, from from staff in particular. I
4: think that that closed loop is a great um, reason for that. It's another a piece of advice, Teresa. I think to the staff is that don't overpromise. You know, that promise. I mean, assure people what you can do, and then hold to it because that's where that trust builds. And then people feel cared for, you know, and it may be so when you receive a call and it's a complicated concern and my response would be there. So, you know, first again, I'm sorry for your experiences, um, there's a lot here to follow up on. So I will begin reviewing it and you should hear back from me by next Wednesday. And if I can't get back to you, even next Wednesday, if I can't, if I don't have any information, I still will call on Wednesday to say, um, I don't have any more details, but I'm working on it. This is what's going on to date. So you continue that uh, assurance without over-promising. Of, I'll fix this. It will be okay. We don't know. We don't know. So
3: I think assurance of that communication is so key. And in that same vein, it's how that translates to the bedside is I'll come in before I end it shift so that you know who's coming in and I'll answer any questions you might have and not showing up. That can really fracture a trusting relationship with a provider and a family. Follow through. If you say you're going to call, then call. If you say you're going to pop in, then pop in. And it's something that simple that can just solidify a bond that makes your relationship. Again, that that trust needs to exist in order for that therapeutic relationship to flourish.
2: So I'm sure you guys have a ton of uh, reach out, if you will. What organization tools do you use to keep up with everything? So that that call back on Wednesday, that call, you know, six calls on Tuesday, you still have to call someone else.
3: So it's I use, I put a lot in mean, me my, my so we document in in what's called CRM in Epic, we document in Epic, but it's peer protected, so you wouldn't see our stuff. But I use my calendar a lot. Um, as a reminder. So as I'm telling somebody I'll call them on Wednesday, I have my calendar open it, and I'm putting in call, you know, call Kate on Wednesday.
4: For me, Kate, it's very much that nursing process that I began, you know, almost 40 uh, uh, or years ago with, you know, assessment, you know, intervention, <laughs> follow-up. And it really is that it is, it is that in a broader scale, you know, you Just like when you're a new grad, you begin with a small assignment and then it grows. So our assignments are huge now, but we also have more, have those basic skills that we can apply throughout our day. You know, I still start my day with a sketch sheet um, of, uh, you know, my patients, my um, what to do. I keep my boxes, need to check them at the end of the day, make sure, um, because there are a lot of balls in the air, but those very basic very, very basic skills um, are transferable across a broad spectrum um, and using, again, the same the technology as well just
3: to document to refer back um, is, is really helpful as well you know, we're here to support you. We're here to support the families and then, and then beyond PSQ's is here to speak with. Our legal team is here. I know sometimes legal sounds scary to some people, but they're here for us. They're a consult service for us. And I can tell you that they are fantastic to work
1: with. I also have to say too, though, as the patient relations, the focus, yes, is the patient and family, but I'm just so impressed with the way that you also focus on the staff and support the staff through these difficult situations. And you do it and you make it seem so seamless, the way that you're able to just enter a situation and make it better. So I really want to thank you, too, for your talents and your team as well.
3: And thank you. I mean, it's clinicians like you and it's and it's teammates and colleagues like you that makes our job easier. So when we reach out and we tell you that there's an issue, we're not saying you did this. We just want to partner with you to, to 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 talk about this and what what you know. Where is the kernel of truth, or what can we do to make things better? So without you, we wouldn't be able to do our job. So we appreciate all you do as well. We do often in our
4: work environment say how privileged we feel to work with you that the expertise you bring to the bedside, to these children, to their families is phenomenal. We say, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could do what we're asking of, of this nurse, of this social worker, of this team. Um, and we feel honored to be a part of it. You know, in many ways, one of the meetings I was in today, I said, I have a 30,000 foot view of this, you know, I, which is, a, I think, a, a, something I can offer to that team to help. But also um, I'm, I'm just, in awe of the work that they're doing and i think that denise that's why it may i'm so glad that it feels that way but that's you make it that way as well Mm -hmm. you welcome us you ask for our help you listen i think that's a mutual respect that really makes it easy as well so Mm -hmm. you are magnificent in what you do and it is i am awestruck most days at what i see and what we do which is Why it's heartbreaking at times when people will complain about something that it's like, do you know what else they did? But it's part of the, you know, human element, right? The work that goes on in this institution across the spectrum, and that's the other thing, this is covers the entire enterprise, so to speak. It doesn't just cover 300 Longwood and the work that goes on across the spectrum is just beyond description for brilliance.
0: You know, we come to work with the intention we're going to do good. We're not coming here to upset anybody or cause anybody harm. It's a very complex system we work in. And like you guys mentioned, there's a lot of moving parts, whether it's on the front line or beyond.
4: You know, I I say this all the time. Patient wouldn't be here or inpatient care if they didn't need nursing. If they were stable and able to leave, it would be because they didn't need nursing care. And so we are the heart of this institution. And I believe that from my heart. It's what I love about Children's Hospital to be able to make such a difference. It is the nurse who patients are here for after hours or after that visit. If you just needed that visit or that day surgery, you could leave. But when you need a nurse, you stay. And that's what we're here for. Being that direct care provider, also sometimes you're the direct assault to nursing care is what people stay here for. So we own that and we should be so proud. Amen. Amen.
2: I think what's uh, such a privilege about doing these these podcasts, it's like you can have like the worst day and come to these podcasts and it just re-energizes your love for working here. Right. And and thank you for that. Because sometimes we do. We oh, so. yeah,
3: thank you. And again, this is going to be a big love fest. Thank, uh, yes. no, thank
4: you. <laughs> okay. thank That's you. exactly what I was trying to say with working together re-energizes. Because there's a true appreciation and respect for what we do together, which is great.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you, guys.
4: Thanks for the opportunity. This was fun.
2: This Small Talk podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator at Boston Children's Hospital, with support from our emergency department and inpatient medicine programs. If you would like to be a guest on Small Talk, email Denise Downey. We'd love to have you as a guest and have you share your expertise with the entire Boston Children's community. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk podcast.